Welcome to Talking Thomism, the official podcast of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. If you enjoy this talk and want to hear other talks like it, don't forget to subscribe. All right, some of you may have heard different versions of this or earlier things before. I've just been cutting around in the area on and off for years. It's curious to me because what is it about one act that kind of disorders the whole moral life in a person? Uh, what is it about moral error that there's not just one but two kinds and they aren't species of a genus? It's just a very strange thing to me, this distinction between moral and venial sin. And it's also historically important, so I'll, I'll draw some attention. If you don't know who John Gerson is, it occurred to me some people may not. He was the Chancellor of Paris, one of the most influential churchmen, spiritual writers, theologians, you know, around 1400, a little before and after. Uh, devotion to St. Joseph, one of the biggest uh, proponents of that. Uh, just very influential. Uh, but he was lumped together with the nominalists in uh, 1473 when Louis XI had an edict against the nominalists at Paris, and he was lumped together, and uh, I think deservedly so. And then when the masters at Paris wrote back, uh, they'd quoted him you know, as an authority, as somebody who thought that logic was important. So by the medieval period, most Catholic theologians clearly affirmed the distinction between mortal and venial <coughs> sins in the sense that by the former one incurs eternal punishment and by the latter does not, one does not. The position usually follows from the view that by committing mortal sin, the agent loses charity, whereas by committing a venial sin, the agent does not. Despite the widespread uh, agreement over these theses, the standard medieval view did not affirm any one way of looking at why sin should be so classified. How is it that by acting against God's prohibition of adultery, the agent becomes separated from God, whereas an agent who eats too much or tells a humorous lie can still in some way order most or all of his actions to God? Many 16th century reformers rejected this distinction between mortal and venial sin because they thought that all sins are equally against God. This historically influential view, I think there are still Protestants who hold this, or some, something like it, has earlier roots in the moral theology of John Gerson and his predecessors, who held that all sin deserves eternal punishment by its nature, but that some sin is venial on account of God's command to make it so. Gerson's very own words in this topic were repeated by Gabriel Beale, who is the single most important theological source for Luther. I will here argue that Gerson's account of mortal sin results from two distinct historical sources and kind of groups of premises even. The first view, most clearly developed in the 12th century, is that any act, any kind of act can be a mortal sin, any kind of sinful act can be a mortal sin when it is committed with full knowledge and consent. And this, this view, what one of the characteristics of Gerson is he's trying to always return to an earlier period, and he admires particularly Bonaventure and Thomas Aquinas, but also Anselm. 
And so there's a kind of return to the sources in Gerson. So it's interesting, these 12th century views. The second view, which was introduced earlier in the 14th century, is that a sin is mortal or venial, simply on account of God's decision to make it so. The second approach is connected to the rise of a kind of divine command theory. So there are these two different sources to his view, I think. The distinction between mortal and venial sin underwent some development in the early scholastic period. In contrast to the earlier penitential literature, there was an increasing focus on the agent's intention. Peter Lombard connected the distinction between the sins to Augustine's distinction between lower and higher reason. According to Lombard, venial sins are always either in sensuality or in the agent's lower reason. In contrast, mortal sins can be either in the lower reason or the higher reason. These distinctions concerning the subject, or are they subjects of, of sin, mortal and venial sins, caused a lot of confusion for later thinkers and thinkers around Lombard. But underscored uh, deliberation and reasoning and how it's involved in a, a mortal sin. Um, and in part, this focus on deliberation and reasoning on the aspect of knowledge uh, reflects the sophisticated approaches of earlier theologians such as Anselm of Canterbury and Peter Abelard. Okay. They weren't concerned with subjects of the soul. They were concerned with knowledge. Both of them, the distinction between mortal and venial sins seems simply to be how much does the agent know? How much is the agent aware of what the agent is doing? Uh, for Anselm, there is no such thing as a little offense against God. A sinner might want to say that he has committed only little sins, but he's still dishonoring God, which is not a little thing. The important point is that sin is committed in defiance of God's will. We often tend to distinguish between sins by considering whether a great amount of harm has been done. You know, has somebody stolen uh, $10 or has somebody stolen $100,000? But Anselm is more concerned with who are we offending. Even if someone commits a relatively little offense, he is still doing what God has prohibited. Each sin is equally, although not of equal badness, it's equally in, so in, in that it's against God's will. And so the most important factor is thinking about, does the agent know that he's acting against God's will? If you do have this complete knowledge, you know you're violating God's will, you're setting yourself up against God. If you aren't thinking about God, or you're just, you know, you're eating a little bit too much extra, and it doesn't occur to you, you aren't setting yourself up against God. So that's where the distinction would be. Now, he has an argument for his thesis that they're all equally deserving of punishment because they're all equally against uh, God. So suppose that God commands what seems to be a very little deed, such as not looking at something, and I don't mean not looking at, I don't know, uh, 
the Land's End swimsuit issue. I mean, like, not looking at uh, that uh, bottle over there, okay? Suppose God commands that you don't look at it. Don't. All right. Might be very little. What evils should we incur in disobeying such a command? Or in obeying such a command, what, what ought we to be prepared to sacrifice to not look at that, right? So suppose a tyrant comes in and says, I'll kill you if you, unless you look at that thing, but we know God commanded us not to. What should we be prepared to do? So Anselm, and I, I put this here, he writes an argument as a dialogue between himself and a certain uh, bozo. I don't know if it's just in Maine or not, but when I was a kid, there was Bozo the Clown who sometimes came to Portland. But is that any, do you know who Bozo the Clown yeah, is? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so he's a national figure. Okay, international, okay. So at any rate, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but Bozo the Clown is with a Z, Bozo here is with an S. But I, I didn't know how else to put it. Sorry. Okay. So what if it were necessary that both the whole world and whatever is not God perishes or is reduced to nothing, or that you to do such, or that you do such a small thing against the will of God? There's a mistake here, right? Obviously. Okay. When I consider the action itself, I see it to be most small. But when I consider that it is against the will of God, I understand that it is something most weighty and comparable to no harm. Right? We're comparing different kinds of things. Sin is worse than any other evil, even the most horrific death. Even uh, sin is even worse than the whole world, just perishing away, collapsing. Right. So if you weigh them between the two you realize that there's no way in which any single deliberately sin can be compared with other evils. Mount all the other kinds of evil together. There's no comparison. Consequently, there's no way in which there can be finite satisfaction for any such sin. Right? No matter how much you punish or try to satisfy some uh, through penance for such a sin, you're never going to reach this level of evil. You're never going to be able to make it even. So all sins committed with full knowledge are bad without measure, right? Compared to each other, maybe they're bad, but compared to anything else, including punishment. Now notice you're thinking here of punishment as like in the same kind of weight, which is odd to me, but, but that's an interesting uh, aside. All right. Abelard provides a clearer account of the distinction between mortal and venial sin, even if it is somewhat tentative. So it's in three of his different works. And discussing this, uh, he, he usually, he doesn't, he contrasts venial sin with damnable or serious sin, gravia, okay, or damnabilia. It's not, uh, it's means mortal though, because it's the kind of sin that you're damned for, okay. He states that the distinction between mortal sin and venial sin is based on the agent's knowledge. All sin requires consent, and consent requires knowledge. But as he writes, we sometimes consent either to boasting, to excessive eating or drinking, 
Yet we know that this should by no means be done, but we do not remember then that it should not be done. Right. It slips us. We order the 12th beer, and we aren't thinking about it as an offense against God. We're thinking about it as a 12th beer. Right. Or even Another. 4th beer. Yeah. yeah. Even a, a small amount of beer, whether it's the 4th or the 12th, doesn't matter. Okay. Assuming fourth would be a venial sin. Say fourth or twelfth within an hour. Okay. The, although Abelard does not share in some approach in how satisfaction we made for mortal sin, so he doesn't focus on this as part of his argument. He is remarkably similar to Anselm in his belief that the distinction between mortal and venial sin is based simply on the, on the agent's knowledge that the agent has at the time while acting. Now, as, as I've tried to draw out, there's an obvious problem here. He thinks there are kinds of acts that by themselves are venial. That's venial ex genere becomes the, the ordinary term later on, venial in kind. So he, he seems to be committed to the position that uh, certain sins always involve a lack of memory, namely those venial in kind. But it's not clear to me why Venial sins such as eating always involve some failure in memory or attention, whereas perjury, murder, and adultery do not, right? I mean, I can imagine ordering the fourth beer and not attending to it, but I can also imagine holding hands with Nicole Kidman and not paying attention to the fact that it's an offense against God, right? It's not, uh, not obvious to me that that's... Uh, but, but at any rate, so... And on Abelard's view, the agent who overeats does not deliberate or think about the fact that he is displeasing God. In contrast, an agent who commits homicide or adultery must be deliberately displeasing God. Now, he doesn't really say the opposite, right? That the kinds that are of themselves venial can't involve full knowledge. But it seems to me that he has to attend this view because these sins in kind are venial and venial sins in kind are venial because they lack full knowledge. So it seems to me an odd problem. Although his focus on the fact is, is on the fact that these other sins must involve full knowledge rather than that these kinds of sins can't involve full knowledge, right? And that would be two, two different claims. Now you're probably familiar with Thomas Aquinas. I just passed over him. But in my handout here, when I've got three, four underlying views trying to show the background, I, I mentioned Thomas Aquinas' view. So beginning in the 13th century, most theologians clearly stated that a sin can be venial for either of two distinct reasons, namely from the imperfection of the act, that is from a lack of deliberation and consent, or from the kind of act that it is. All right. So most scholastics came to knowledge that some acts, such as humorous lies or eating too much, are ve only venially sinful even when the agent fully deliberates and has knowledge. These deliberate venial sins are venial ex generate. It's just the kinds of things that are venial, that don't interfere with charity. Um, there's no agreement why such sins are only venial in kind, whereas others are mortal. Both Aquinas and Bonaventure think that mortal sin is against the law, whereas the venial sins are somehow outside the law. And that involves the order to the end. Venial sins are not about the end. 
whereas mortal sins are. They are something necessarily connected with the end. But at any rate, in the 14th century, there's a shift away from this kind of dis discussion to uh, God's will. And you have more of the divine command theories, either directly or more often indirectly. According to such theories, an act is good or bad even, never mind uh, meritorious or sinful, only by extrinsic domination, denomination. That is, an act is good or bad not because of something in itself, but on account of something else, namely the divine will. They accept the overall framework according to which some sins are venial ex genere, whereas others are venial because of an imperfection, right? a lack of consent or knowledge. Like, uh, but our concern is how they might explain why some sins are venial or mortal ex genere. So we're focusing on the fact that there are certain kinds of acts that are on their kind venial sins. right? Uh, Jocose lies, overeating. Uh, typical, typical examples. Now, however you interpret William of Ockham, he's influential, and I think we can safely say that he shifts the focus of ethical theory, at least justification of ethical norms, away from human nature and towards divine commands. He does not address the distinction between venial and mortal sin at length, but he does discuss it while treating of the sacrament of penance, and very shortly. A lot of times the distinctions discussed earlier in sentence commentaries on <coughs> sin. He's on a special thing on the, on the sacrament itself. According to William, mortal sin is not something real itself, but instead it describes the commission or omission of something which is obliged under the penalty of eternal punishment. God could have ordered the world in such a way that acts which are now mortal were not so, or that acts which are now good were mortal. Mortal sin refers the acts to the acts relation, the term mortal sin, I should say, right? Put it in quotes, but refers to the acts relation to God's decision to make such an act mortal, mortally sinful. The difference between mortal and venial sins seems not to be in the sins themselves, but rather in how they are punished. And I'm just trying to indicate that this is kind of a common 14th century view. Think about what, what I'm trying to do is to show how Gerson's drawing on 12th century sources and then 14th century sources and combining them in kind of a, a strange way to me. Um, so take Robert Holcutt. He gives a similar account. But for both Occam and Holcutt, the malice of mortal sin remains the same, uh, just as, as God has currently ordered, because God currently ordered it. Holcutt seems to accept Anselm's argument in the Cura Deus Homo for the infinite gravity of sin, but he states that it holds only given the current laws. Right? So... We ought not to say um, eat, overeat, even if the whole world would be destroyed, and this is true, but that's true not because of anything about overeating, it's because of the, uh, the, the laws that God has set up and overeating together, okay? 
Um, with other laws in place, God could even bind uh, someone such as Socrates to commit a mortal sin. Now, this is something Occam wouldn't do. This is odd. He writes that in such a case, Socrates must wish to sin mortally against the second law, right? Or hate what he believes to be necessary to salvation against the first. So, so you'd be kind of stuck, right? Because either you're, uh, you're disobeying one law or the other when God, God, God might even do that, right? Because this is just something mortal sin is in relation to God's uh, uh, binding power. Um, Peter Dye, more influential than Holcott, if you don't know the 14th century, Gerson's incredibly influential towards the end, I mean late 14th century or early 15th, but Dye is one of the big figures, both of them one of the most important churchmen uh, in the uh, the uh, controversy over the councils, the papal schism, or but not two popes, whatever you call it, and then the uh, right. So Vincent Ferrer said it was clear, and there was the one. But whatever your view on which pope was which, okay. It, but but they were extraordinarily important here, going into the early 1400s. But then later 13. Dai was an associate and friend of Gerson. He develops this element of Occam's ethical theory. First, he states that moral obligation is entirely due to God's choice to bind the agent and not to intrinsic features of the agent or the act. So he's separated from the agent. Absolutely, it is possible for a rational creature to be from God and not be obligated from him. So part of acting rationally, there might be no obligation, just uh, God doesn't make the world that way. And no contradiction appears in that God would will it to be, would not will it to be held to something, just as is the case among irrational creatures. So he might make us with intellects, but no more subject to moral or merit or demerit get concerns moral concern goodness or meritorious than say a dog is okay that's an interesting way of thinking about morality right um, now it's important people don't object to this I think that these remarks are extraordinarily important in the history of philosophy um, but sometimes people accuse Occam or die of holding that maybe God's going to command us to start murdering people left and right, right? I mean, it's got nothing to do with what will actually happen. You're thinking about the concepts. What do we mean when we say somebody's obligated to do something? Is it something about the world? Is it something about what somebody wants? If case, who wants it? The answer is no, it's not about the created world. Secondly, it's about what somebody wants or somebody's uh, preference. Third, namely God's. Okay, I'm not saying that's right, but that's the point that they're trying to make, okay? All right. So, like Occam, Dai never suggests that such considerations of what is absolutely speaking possible can or should undermine ordinary moral notions. 
His point is that such ordinary moral notions are ultimately reduced to God's establishment of the present order. Since acts have no intrinsic malice or goodness, their moral worth is due only to God's free choice. Only a contradiction limits God's ability to command an act. Only commanding a free act that is outside the agent's power would entail such a contradiction. Right. So, for example, he commands somebody to freely uh, do something that he's incapable of doing, like flying to the moon. But other than that, if it's a free act that can be done by somebody with reason, they could do it. Someone cannot both be bound to obey God and bound to disobey him, so that would be a, a contradiction. Holcott seems like he might be okay with that. Um, and to take an example from Occam, though, although he can't command a contradiction, some people, I mean, this has, I think, been refuted, first by me, then by Eric Hagedorn. But at any rate, Occam says that God can hate him several times, and even in texts where some people says that he doesn't, that's not at all what he's saying. They're just misreading the text. He thinks it's quite possible for hating God to be meritorious. Occam does. Dai as well. Yeah. Um, See, he says, one creature can command another that it hate God. Since therefore God can per se immediately do in the genus of an efficient cause whatever he can do by means of a secondary cause, and he can by means of a creature make such a precept, follows that he per se can do it. However, in obeying such a precept made by God, a creature would merit. So if God commanded a creature to hate him, and uh, said that this would be meritorious, it would be not just licit, but meritorious for the creature to hate God. Now, such an act now incurs eternal punishment. He's not saying it's okay to hate God. right? But you're just thinking about what does it mean to say that something's meritorious or not, or even naturally good or bad. According to his absolute power, God could have ordered the world so that the hatred of him would be meritorious and lead to eternal life. Similarly, Dai thinks that infused charity and mortal sin are incompossible simultaneously in the same subject only because of the law that God ordains. Their contrariety does not result from any intrinsic natures or forms that they have. I mean, a lot of my interest in these issues comes working backwards from Luther or the Reformation. I don't think you can understand Luther without understanding, certainly, Beale. Um, and you may have heard of Luther's, your, you know, a simul justus uh, et peccator, and you're wondering what that means. Well, you have a forensic account of justification, and so somebody <laughs> can be sinful and yet at the same time justified. So, so all of this goes back to these earlier 14th century uh, thoughts about uh, mortal sin. It's not like it comes right from reading the Bible. And then, I mean, it's just like speculations of 14th century people. But whereas the 14th century people didn't go into heresy, Luther and the others did. I mean, that's what the difference is. But a lot of the framework can be is similar in this and other areas, I think. I have something about that in the Eucharist as well. 
or and also on causing sin, I think. But at any rate, um, so they're not saying that it's just an arbitrary choice. God's established order remains constant, and such acts as hating God will always be wrong. And they also never suggest that disobedience can be good, right? So it's not just arbitrarily God can assign goodness or badness to anything. He might take it away, perhaps, but be another thing to assign goodness or, act, or badness to something other than a human act. That's the, right? God can't do anything contradictory. But in uh, Occam never suggests that disobedience can be good. And Dai explicitly denies the possibility. So Dai actually considers this and says, no, it would be a contradiction for God to command disobedience. So something like Holcutt's uh, claim there might be problematic for Dai. Uh, one thing, though, Dai does note that when we discuss these issues, we uh, have to watch about offending pious ears, okay? So... What? I didn't think my ears so were that pious, but I'm, I'm pretty offended. Really? <laughs> well, he, he, didn't, he wouldn't mean to, you know. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Makes me feel a lot better. Makes me feel pretty good to find that I got pious in. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the point is that moral goodness and badness come from something other than nature, and there's not anything other than God that's the source here. Now, there are certain features which must be present for an act to be moral. You have to have an act done with knowledge and consent. But these are just parts of a contradiction. What, 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 what does it mean to be a moral act? If you didn't have knowledge and consent of some sort, it wouldn't be a moral <coughs> act if it weren't free. But that doesn't mean that uh, certain kinds of such acts have to be good or bad. So the goodness or badness, that's something that could always have been one way rather than another, depending on God's approval or disapproval, right? I mean, to me, this always seems like when I read the uh, kind of, a, not just emotivists, but the expressivists in particular, you know, in metaethics, they always seem to me like a divine command theorist. But instead of God, it's just everybody. So it's complete chaos, and it's less careful, but it seems to me that that's what they're like, the 14th century people. So now to get to Jerison. He was Dai's student and lifelong ally. And at least since the 15th century, he has often been classified with Occam and Dai as anomalists. I mean, there's never anomalous school like Scotus or Thomas. Some people reject the uh, use of the term, but I mean, it's, use, it's helpful for grouping people together, and it was used pr pretty early on in the 1400s, and people were named, and it's the same people who were named, okay? It's not like it's just uh, somebody in, say, the 1800s or 1900s coming up with it. Uh, despite being lumped together, he had his own eclectic philosophical and theological views. And I mentioned before how often Gerson wants to move 
back to something before the 14th century. He wants to move back to the mid-13th century and then way back to Anselm. Gerson, in his most influential account of mortal sin, he, was, he seems to follow Occam and Dai in emphasizing God's command, although he departs from them in arguing that every deliberate sin is in itself worthy of punishment. So it's, it's kind of, to me, a, a combination of these different divine command views and the view that every sin is worthy of damnation. Now, Gerson, it's not like he, uh, he's disagreeing with Dai. Gerson addresses an issue that is importantly distinct from Dai's issue. He's not talking about God's ability to make such acts deserving of punishment or meritorious, but instead he's concerned with God's decision to make some fully deliberate sins, acts which would otherwise deserve eternal punishment, into merely venial sins. So he may still have the view that more widely speaking, right, God could have uh, made it so that things were sins at all and there'd be no sin. He doesn't suggest that though, but it would be compatible. But there would be like two levels here, right? One level would be there's a world of sin and desert or something and every sin is mortal. <coughs> and then another level where only some sins are mortal. God knows. But at any rate, it's that second level that we're at. Okay, we're at the level where every sin deserves eternal punishment in hell. Only some, but some sins, God through his mercy decides not to punish people. And this is really influential. Uh, the, the, the most one in his Liber de Spirituale Anime, which he wrote between 1398 and 1402. I think I have the quote here. I mean, this is just... Uh, repeated in Jacques Almain and then other uh, Beale whom Luther read every sin inasmuch as it is an offense against God and against his eternal law is by its condition and unworthiness death bringing according to the rigor of justice and it is something that separates someone from the life of glory the reasoning is because every offense against God can be justly punished by that judge God with temporal as well as eternal death nay the punishment of annihilation and therefore it is of itself death-bringing. Just as a pause, some of you might be interested in annihilationism. Right, Gerson's not annihilation. He's not, he's just, he seems to be thinking that this would even be worse than hell, but God could justly do this if he wanted to. So that's very different from annihilationists who think that it's better than hell and God through his mercy annihilates people. Okay, so he's just thinking, this would be even worse, and God could justly do it, just for knowingly overeating, okay? Right, like, uh, oh, I'm kind of hungry now. I see that cake out there. I know I shouldn't eat cake because of it's, uh, you know, I'm too attached to it, but I do it because I enjoy it. And knowingly want to do it. Okay. Burning like toast for eternity. I'm an eternal toaster that's always down and won't come up. Okay, note that unlike the 13th century thinkers, so somebody like Thomas Aquinas I mentioned talks about things being aside from the law, 
there's no such discussion later on. There's not against the law and aside the law. Eating that cake, too much of that cake, is equally against God's eternal law as murdering somebody. <coughs> Considering this law in effect, though, is the sin mortal. Right? So, remember that the sin is working on this book. He was trying to convince Dai and others that theologians should return to the great authors of the 13th and 12th centuries, including Anselm by name. And I'm going to return to Anselm here because this premise concerning the uh, horribleness of venial sin. I mean, let's look again at this. The assumption is the fact that no punishment is such that it is evil as the offense itself is evil. And also, since it would be better that every penal death whatsoever, nay, rather annihilation, should be sustained, rather than a small offense against God should be committed. Now, this isn't... Gerson wasn't citing Anselm there. Uh, at least explicitly, there's no like editor's reference, but it seems to me pretty close, right? There's not just the, any punishment that you have in Gerson, but there's even the annihilation that you have in Gerson. So it seems to me that that's pretty close, right? Any sin will always deserve more punishment than can be assigned to it. Even if the sinner had infinite goods, so it would be just for God to take them away, right? Otherwise, it might be reasonable to, convince venial, to commit venial sins in some instances. So you might say, well, um, the uh, guy is going to uh, put a bomb, uh, a nuclear bomb off in Houston if I don't eat too much cake. So I'm going to uh, sin by eating too much cake. Not only do I have to eat too much cake, but I have to do it sinfully. Okay. Right. If somehow this weren't the worst evil, that would that would make sense to venial sin in such a case, right? Or somebody's asking me, where is the uh, the Jewish person so we can put them in the uh, ovens? All right. Well, uh, if venial sin weren't so evil, I could think yes, uh, it would make more sense to tell a lie to rescue that person, right? Um, if I didn't understand the full gravity of venial sin. Okay. Now, notice that <coughs> there is a real proportion between punishment and sin, and that's not merely due to God's will. Now, it's not a God contradiction for God to do evil to people. So, for instance, God could inflict any evil on the Blessed Virgin Mary, and that wouldn't be wrong, but it wouldn't, could never be a punishment. Why? Because uh, she never sinned. So, um, so, the limit here, then, is that certain things deserve punishment. So it's not just that we're weighing evils. And this is the distinction between weighing evils and punishment where I think this argument might have problems. Uh, it's not... It, 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 the issue is not one where... It's not just a matter of this is as evil as uh, blowing everybody up or annihilating the world 
it's it's of apples and oranges. It's different in kind, and this whole kind is worse. Uh, but at any rate. Uh, Gerson notes the thesis that all sins are moral does not entail a further thesis that all deliberate sins are equally bad, which he associates with the Stoics. That's something I think that people sometimes fall into. They think that means all sins are equal. That's a different thesis, and you'd have to argue more for that, right? They're all equally deserving of hell, but that doesn't mean that they're all um, equal. Uh, okay. So what happens? Well, just God remits punishment for some of the sins. And that's what makes it venial, and that's what kind of makes it possible for us to sin venially regularly every day and to still be in a state of grace. There's some line, who knows where it was put, where overeating and jocose lies become venial and mortal and murder and adultery don't but it's nothing about the kind of act and that would be Thomas Aquinas right there's certain kinds of acts which necessarily entail disorder so you have the gravity it's not that they're all equally bad but you have uh, a gradation and at some place God just draws a line all right so in summary, Gerson accounts for the existence of sins which are venial ex generi by stating that they are venial only in account of God's merciful refusal to impute to them the same punishment which is due to mortal sins. At first, Gerson's approach might seem to be a strange combination of two previous approaches, but it has greater explanatory strength than either position does when taken singly. Gerson's positions can be taken to account the existence of ex generi venial sins, which Abelard doesn't do very well, you know, because Abelard has to say that they aren't committed de deliberately. Gerson can say, yes, they are, even though they're venial. Moreover, by his assistance that every offense is against God is worthy of eternal punishment, Gerson emphasized the intrinsic gravity of sin more than Occam and Dai do. Occam and Dai I mean, there's a way in which everything can seem to be really bad if God chooses, but on the other hand, you, you wonder, well, I mean, God could just decide that it isn't bad, and then we'd all be, we'd be doing great. There's no, uh, right. Now, but I'm not sure whether this approach is consistent. In fact, I think it isn't. So, so think about this. He holds both that all sins in themselves are worthy of punishment, along with the belief that this guilt depends on God's will. Um, but there's a conceptual connection with sinning and punishment so sin is worthy of punishment and he doesn't really talk about the connection between sin and punishment being due to God's will but then all of a sudden the God's will starts coming in for the mortal venial distinction, right? So is this like half of a divine command theory? Is there a divine command theory behind it? What's going on? But I think some of it is his different sources. If you're trying to use Anselm and Anselm's way of reasoning, and you're also in this world with Dai and Holcott, it's hard to fit everything together. 
possible, perhaps, but he doesn't do it. Now, then, why is this theoretically important? To me, it's perhaps most significant for its influence on later writers. First, there is the previously mentioned use of the text by Beale, and we can speculate about its influence on Luther. Catholics such as John Fisher, who disagreed with Luther over the distinction between venial and mortal sin, accepted the thesis that some sins are venial only by God's mercy. So in his disputations, uh, Fisher, Fisher doesn't argue Luther that no, some are venial in kind because of what they do. He says it's just God's mercy. And it also reminds me of people talk about uh, what sinners in the hand of an angry God with Jonathan Edwards, but you find that same image in so many sermons. It's right there in John uh, Fisher's sermons on the uh, on the Psalms, on the penitential Psalms. It's not something uh, particularly Calvinist. But at any rate, that's an aside, I'm sorry. Second, Jacques Almain died in 1515. He was extraordinarily influential on Thomas and others, political philosophy, just a man of great influence. He not only reproduces Gerson's thesis, but he also puts Gerson's arguments into a clearer and more developed form. So Gerson, it's more kind of a spiritual writing or a talk. Almain just develops this and makes it into a long scholastic argument in an ordinary theological work. Thomas, who rejected Gerson's views on venial sin, so it's something that Thomas had to address later on, they don't seem to be rejecting uh, Gerson, but Almay's presentation of Gerson. Nevertheless, this becomes a standard issue, right, among reformers, then within Catholic theology. So it's important to me just in itself but also thinking about these early modern discussions of uh, justification and merit. Thank you. If you enjoyed this talk and would like to hear more, please don't forget to like and subscribe to Talking Thomism. Thanks for listening. Talking Thomism is a production of the Center for Thomistic Studies at the University of St. Thomas, Houston. The Center for Thomistic Studies is the only graduate program in the United States uniquely dedicated to the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas. To find out more, please visit us at www.stthom.edu/cts.